and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Each week, our panel of Chelsea experts bring you the very latest blues news and views. On today's show, the latest on Chelsea's return to training. We'll discuss the Italian influence at Stamford Bridge and look back on Adrian Mutu's troubled time in West London. All that to come on this edition of Straight Out of Cobham. Yes, hello again, listener. Thanks for lending us your ears. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, and as well as my usual trifecta of chatters, we'll also have an Italian expert on board later in the show. Uh, first up, though, let's bring in the regulars. Having presumably just demolished his daughter's keepy-uppy record in the back garden, he's brimming with even more vim and vigour than usual. It's Simon Johnson. Hello, everyone. Wow, vim and vigour are plenty there. That was triumphant. <laughs> I'm disconcerted by that, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, also on board, his interview with Chelsea fan and former snooker world champion Neil Robertson is up on The Athletic now, but as the only potter with a 100% attendance record, he's not used to a big break. It's Liam Toomey. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely segue, lovely segue. Uh, and not forgetting the man whose brief for The Athletic is wider than the gap between two subs on a Bundesliga bench, it's Dominic Fifield. <laughs> these are magnificent, I have to say. How long have you been working on these, a whole week? Yes. Uh, it's tremendous. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> uh, we'll hear from the Athletics Italian football aficionado James Horncastle later, but first, the continually brief latest news section. So there is a breaking story as we record on Monday lunchtime. The Met Police have released a statement following reports that Callum Hudson-Odoi was released on police bail after being arrested in the early hours of Sunday morning. The statement reads, Police and London Ambulance Service were called at 03.53 hours on Sunday, May 17th to a report of an unwell woman. A man was arrested at the scene. He was released from custody and bailed to return on a date in mid-June. Inquiries continue. And no word... As we record from Chelsea on this, clearly not much more we can say on this story legally at the moment. Of course, you will be able to find updates on this as it develops on The Athletic. There are a couple of news lines coming out of Stamford Bridge from this past weekend that we can talk about, though. Frank Lampard spoke to the Chelsea website over the weekend. Amongst the topics up for discussion were the futures of the Blue Squad members out of contract in the summer, namely William Pedro and Olivier Giroud, the latter of whom we are expecting to sign a one-year extension. Last week, the Premier League announced that clubs unanimously agreed to be allowed to enter into short-term contract extensions with players whose deals are due to expire on the 30th of June of this year. So if we think Giroud is staying... And what do we make of the futures of the other two? I noticed, Liam, that, that William came out at the weekend and said he hadn't spoken to Jose Mourinho about a possible move to Spurs. Um, it's looking more likely, though, that, that he's going to be a player for somebody other than Chelsea next season, whenever that is. Yeah, I mean, that's been the case with William for, for several months. Chelsea are not going to give him the three-year deal that he wants. Um and of course, we're all expecting Pedro to leave as well. But I think the the situation with short term extensions, we're still trying to ascertain exactly how each individual player feels about it. But I I would think, given that other clubs aren't really going to be going out of their way to approach them at this point, um, it probably makes pragmatic sense for the players as well as as well as the clubs to agree on this extension provided of course that both sides can make the money work and maybe um Chelsea will will throw Willian and, and Pedro a little bit extra just to stay on until the season is completed but it's it's a it's an awkward conversation and of course we've had Willian coming out publicly as well and saying that he's not totally comfortable um playing right now with with the pandemic situation as it is so that's that's only going to further complicate matters, but I would say I, I would kind of lean towards both sides coming towards an agreement, if only for the for the short term. Simon, there's there's been a long history of players leaving Chelsea for Spurs, albeit maybe not so many in, in recent times. But this one would would particularly stick in the craw of of Chelsea supporters, wouldn't it? Given Williams' past relationship with Tottenham and the fact that he would be leaving without a fee being commanded. Possibly, um, yeah, and inevitably that there's always no no one um, at Chelsea wants to see a player join a rival. But then Chelsea have been down this route before with, with uh, players leaving for Arsenal, for example, in Petr Cech and William Gallas, and and went on to have the last laugh 
Um, David Luiz, of course, another one. So they will be getting Willian in the latter part of their of his career. So that would be sort of quite a consolation. Of course, inevitably, if the two teams play each other whenever that actually happens again, and and Willian's in the in the opposition lineup, I'm sure he'll get a bit of stick. But I think Chelsea Chelsea fans on the whole will, will know the situation that. William himself wanted to stay. The clubs couldn't come to an agreement, and and he and he moved on for the desire of staying in London. And I I, I just think, like I said, Chelsea fans will probably be thinking. The weird thing about William actually is he's got a bit of a split split about him in, in, among the fan base. That there are those that that don't actually rate him that highly, which does surprise me. If you if you go on social media, um. There, there are many people that are quite happy to uh, give him a bit of stick. So for those people, I don't think they'll be too disappointed to see him go, although they might be a bit disappointed to see him in a Tottenham shirt. Well, for his part, Lampard said on, on the out-of-contract players, hopefully we can have the arrangement so they can stay with us because if we play again, I'd love the squad to look as it's looked all season. But we'll have to see how that works. In in this instance, in, in particular with Chelsea, but with Premier League players in general, I guess, Dom, have the players, rather than the club, got the power here because the club wants to keep them and maybe they don't want to stay so, so they could ask for, for the deal to be sweetened in, in some way in their favour. In terms of in terms of players who are out of contract this summer, I, I look at it, it, each one, it, it, it depends upon what, what is on the table for them. They're not supposed to be able to negotiate with other Premier League clubs at, or clubs in, this, in, the, in England at, at the moment, but they can obviously we be speaking to foreign clubs and if if there's an offer on the table from a foreign club that is going to is two years or three years which I still have to pinch myself when when I hear that William wanted a three-year deal it's remarkable but you know if if that offer is there then the, the, then those players well yeah the power is with them I mean they're, they're not going to want to surely natural instincts are going to kick in and they're not going to want to risk picking up a serious injury um, playing in a in a one or two or three month extension at at, at their current club, um, which you know if they, if they sustain injury in that time might jeopardise the next two or three years of their life. Um, it's it's just perfectly natural, and it's it's going to have to be done by a player by player basis, um, and it will depend upon the you know where they are in their careers, what is on the table for them. Uh, and and you know the, the, I suppose that their history with their current clubs as well. It's uh, it's a unique situation and one that's going to develop over the next few weeks. Well, in other news, with players expected to return for training this week, Lampard's also had his say on that during last week's meeting of Premier League managers and those in charge of the league. People who've read the incredibly comprehensive piece on the Athletic detailing what happened during those talks. And we'll know that Lampard was one of the more vocal managers on the issue of player welfare. And by the way, if you aren't a subscriber, remember that right now you can get a free 90-day trial of The Athletic by going to theathletic.com slash ChelseaPod. You're free to cancel at any time during that period. Um, Liam, Frank Lampard, one of those who doesn't seem to be that keen to get things going again until it's absolutely safe. What what sort of weight did his voice carry in that meeting, do you think? It, it wasn't just him, was it, who, who voiced some opposition? No, we understand there were four managers um, who, who spoke up saying things along similar lines to, to, to what Lampard said. Um, but he was certainly the... Well, him and Jurgen Klopp were the two big names um, of those four. And I think... It makes sense, you know, when when you think about their public personas, they they've they've always carried themselves in in very socially conscious ways, and and thinking about issues maybe bigger than just football. And and Lampard's been fairly consistent since the shutdown happened that um, football must kind of take its place, and that it can only return when when we've got the bigger priorities in order, like a properly you know, equipped NHS and and a, and a virus under control and and all these other things. And and I think Lampard's also cognizant of the fact that his players have misgivings, just as players at all clubs do, about returning, about potentially getting this virus at some point in a game or around a game, and then passing it on to their to their relatives. And and he he need, he wants to to preserve those relationships with his players and make them feel like their concerns are. Are heard and and he of course was a player not so long ago himself so I'm sure he can easily put himself in in their shoes and and imagine how he would feel in in that situation so 
I think he's going to continue to be quite vocal on this, and we'll see if 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 a accommodation can be found that 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 works for all parties. Yeah, there's going to be a developing situation to so keep across the Athletic for the rest of the week for the latest on that. Okay, next up today, we're going to go all Italian. Pleased to say the Athletic Sultan of Syria, James Horncastle, joins us now. Uh, James, before we get to Chelsea, briefly tell all those who might not know what, what the plan is vis-a-vis football restarting in Italy. So the plan is to restart on June 13th. The league announced that uh, last week. Um, they have still yet to get um, their medical protocol approved by the Government Scientific Committee. Um, The first draft of that was rebuffed. The second one, they made modifications to it, and then they took it back to their stakeholders, the clubs, and the clubs were like, hang on a minute, that is completely unworkable. Um, So that has really slammed the brakes on on, on progress um, in City at this moment in time. Teams were due to return to group training um, this week. They have been back for a week already um, doing individualized training on a on a voluntary basis after undergoing um, screening um, so testing uh, for, for COVID-19 um, but because they haven't got the uh, the go-ahead um, from all the parties for uh, the medical protocol it looks like individualized training is going to continue um, for for the near future, so uh, as as with everything in Italy, uh, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, Chelsea wise, then headline writers who are also fans of the nineteen eighties Manchester Popsy might get their wish this summer, given the Blues have been linked with a move for Juventus Bosnian midfielder Miralem Pjanic. Any truth to the rumours that we might be seeing Pjanic on the streets of London once lockdown is over? Nice, nice. Um, look. Um, there have been talks between Juventus and uh, and Chelsea. Um, Juventus have been pretty active um, during this this pause, um, either in extending player contracts or just, in the words of their chief football officer Fabio Paratici, being flexible. And I think what Juventus are seeking to achieve is to to upskill their midfield um, at lower cost. Um, and yeah, Pjanic is a kind of crucial uh, key in that plan. Um, because Pjanic is is 30. Um, he is one of the club's top earners. I think he makes uh, $7 million a year net. And I think this is going to be one of the last opportunities for Juventus to realise a sizable amount of money um, for him, um, be that, well, mainly in a trade uh, for someone, uh, which is why... Yeah, we have heard um, the name Jorginho mooted uh, reunion with Maurizio Sarri. At the moment, from 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 um, what I have been told, um, Juventus is, have had much more kind of active discussions with Barcelona about a trade for Pjanic um, involving players uh, from their side rather than with uh, rather than Chelsea. Um, I do think Chelsea would maybe. You 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 guys will know more about this than me, but reticent about taking on a player player of that age um, uh, on those wages um, at this at this particular time um, but yeah definitely there has been uh, discussions between uh, Juventus at Chelsea but not just on this on a on a, on a re- it's, it's been more kind of an exploratory um, series of talks about what business they may be able to do um, over well whenever the transfer window opens. You mentioned Jorginho there and, and as you say people have kind of put two and two together and thought that Maurizio Sarri might like him back at Juventus. But but there's no been no indication from the player that, that he's unhappy in England, has there? And, and obviously he's Chelsea's vice-captain at the moment. So presumably Chelsea are keen to keep him in, and he's keen to stay for the moment. Yeah, and what I could what I could gather a couple of weeks ago is that he uh, he has actually enjoyed this season um, stepping out of, of, of Sarri's shadow, really. Um yeah, having been so closely associated with him uh, for for so long, and being uh, linked indelibly to to a, a particular style of play, I think he's enjoyed showing that he can do it under another manager. Showing that, um, well, let's say, getting greater acclaim than he did last season um, for his performances. Um, I think this has been an experience that he's actually in. Enjoyed. Uh, you know, again, from from some of the discussions that I've had around him, there was there was a feeling that going back to Italy in the year the year of the European Championship um, would be advantageous to him. But 
Um, again, I, I, I don't think that has a significant bearing on how Jorginho looks at his at his future. Um, you know, the, the manager of the national team is Roberto Mancini. Mancini uh, follows the Premier League still. Um, there's not just Jorginho uh, there, but Emerson Palmieri um, as well at Chelsea. And he knows the level of the Premier League, so it's it's not the issue it was, let's say, when Gianfranco Zola was playing for playing for Chelsea in the '90s, and City A was by far the best league in the world. Um, and anyone who who left it was not given the same consideration as they they would have been had they stayed in City A. So, yeah, I, I, again, I, the, the the noises that I've heard from from that camp is is that Jorginho is 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 still um, happy to to continue at uh, at Stamford Bridge. A couple of questions that we've had from listeners uh, via Twitter for you, James. Luke Askew has been in touch. He says, if Chelsea could sign one Italian player that isn't Insignia for next season, who should it be? Good question. Italian player. So mm. not just a Serie A-based player. Well, I think the one that most people are excited about is is Nicolo Zaniolo, um, the, the Roma um, player who, who kind of burst onto the scene last season. He had a a bad knee injury uh, back in the spring, which looked like it was going to rule him out for the European Championships. Obviously, the Euros have now been moved. I think Zaniolo is really exciting for a number of reasons. I think he could, he would be perfect for the Premier League in that he has the engine, he's got the the intensity, the energy to 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 be a, a great box to box midfield player. You know, he's tended to play on the on the wing uh, for Roma this season or behind the behind the striker, and he's he's definitely after Jeco, kind of their most most threatening player on the ball. And he's just really exciting to watch. I think he would go down a treat with uh, with the fans at the bridge. Another player who's been been long linked with Chelsea is Dries Mertens. Uh, Brian asking, if you were Mertens, would you join Chelsea or Inter? I guess it's the, the familiarity of staying in Italy versus what potential damage to his reputation with Napoli fans by joining a rival. Is that, is that a consideration for him? Yeah, this is... <laughs> Quite the situation. Um, yeah, Mertens has has options. He had an offer from Chelsea in in uh, in January. Um, he uh, yeah. F- f- the last I heard about this, he wanted to finish the season with Napoli. He wants to break that record, um, that that club record of uh, being the all time top scorer. Um, I think he's only you know one or two goals short of of overtaking uh, Marek Hamsik. Um, and that for for Dries represents unfinished business. I don't think it's to be ruled out that he could stay. I know that just before um, uh, the pandemic uh, hit and lockdown started and, and the league was suspended, that Napoli felt that they had put a a very good offer on the table uh, for Dries. Um, in fact, I think they were already briefing that it was as good as done that he was going to uh, extend his contract. But I think the player wants to take a little bit of time. As for Inter, uh, who wouldn't want uh, a player uh, of Dries' talent for, for quote-unquote free? Um, yeah, the option there, I suppose, is win the league title that he couldn't win um, at, uh, at Napoli with, uh, with Inter, reunite with Romelu Lukaku and play uh, big man, little man kind of partnership up front with him and play for you know Antonio Conte, who's got a as Chelsea fans well know, a proven track record of winning things. Um, so, yeah, that situation is still very fluid. Um, but as I say, I wouldn't rule out um, Dries going with his heart and uh, and staying. But, um, yeah, remains remains a fluid situation. Another reason we've got James on is to talk Adrian Mutu. Now, Simon's got a piece up on The Athletic about the Romanian and his sacking from Chelsea in 2004. Uh, Simon, for anyone who hasn't yet read it, give us a quick potted history of of where it all went wrong for Mutu in West London. (laughs) Quick potted history. That's quite difficult Uh, in itself. I've just read the article, so I know what a difficult thing I've just thrown your way there. But yeah. (laughs) Well, put it put it this way: um, he arrived with great expectation in two thousand three for fifteen point eight million pounds from Palmer. Got off to a great start, but unfortunately, um, he was very distracted with London's nightlife, and in uh, as we all have been. Well, yeah, I suppose <laughs> <laughs> to some various degrees, and uh, Adrian Mutu has taken it, took it to the nth degree, and was was uh, basically he failed a drugs test. Uh, in September 2004, um, was found to have taken cocaine. Uh, Chelsea sacked him before the FA even held a hearing on it. 
He was subsequently banned for seven months, but Chelsea then pursued him for compensation. Uh, FIFA uh, eventually deciding that he owed him £13.5 million. Um, he, he carried on his playing career in Italy, which we'll talk to James about. But um, as far as we're aware, and as much as I endeavoured to, to, to find out for certain, but I don't think he's paid a single penny yet. But as he's now currently coach of Romania's under-21s team, um, I'm sure he's on a reasonable salary, but perhaps not quite enough to uh, make even a dent into £13.5 million, which he owes Chelsea. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an incredible story, this. Uh, James, his, his exit from Chelsea, curious for all sorts of reasons, one of them being that he joined Livorno for, for a matter of weeks and, and, and then left without playing a game to go to Juventus. What what was the story behind the story there? Well, I mean, look, Juventus have... Um... Yeah, they call it synergy. I say they call it. It's been called synergy uh, with uh, a number of clubs around uh, around Italy, where you know they have they have good relationships, good partnerships. I don't think that's necessarily uncommon. Um, uh, you know, you, you see it with even clubs in the Premier League that send send players to certain clubs abroad or or certain clubs in the Championship or, or whatever. Um, but with with Mutu, that was that was certainly quite curious. Mutu then was, well, what a part of the squad that would uh, would win a couple of uh, league titles in between 04 and 06, which were were later revoked in the uh, in the Calciopoli scandal. Um, but um, yeah, turned up uh, back in Italian football and playing for a club that was certainly able to pay him. Uh, a very good wage, um, which again I think, as is, is, is Simon was saying, was one of the reasons why Chelsea were quite keen to pursue him. And there was always this feeling that you know Mutu might never stop playing because he had to keep playing in order to pay um, <laughs> in order to pay back those damages. I mean, even when he went back to Italy, I mean, it's just, just fascinating how uh, I remember at Fiorentina where he was he was seen as a a bit of a hero. He um, he ended up punching a waiter, I think, breaking his nose um, in the Four Seasons Hotel in Florence, um, and um, again had to had to pay some kind of damages for that. We also had him, you know, taking a well. He failed a drugs test in 2010 as well when he took like a slimming pill, um, which was uh, which was a, a on, on the all of a sudden on the banned substances list. Um, and you know, later his mum came out and said, "Oh, that those slimming pills were mine." Um, but um, you know, Adrian—they'd somehow found their way into to Adrian's system. Um, but you know, just a, a, an outstanding talent as well. I mean, Simon mentioned that that start to his Chelsea career. I, I don't think that ne- necessarily took anyone by surprise in Italy, because you know, certainly with Palmer, where he struck up this this incredible partnership on and off the pitch with Adriano, um, that would have been a night out. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. He was yeah someone who ended his career in Italy, scoring more than a hundred goals in Serie A, which you know is not many. Not many players have done that, and, and players of far greater and more illustrious reputation have done that than uh, than Mutu. You mentioned his his time in Italy coming to an end. How's he? How's it viewed now? Kind of post playing days, is he thought of more as an excellent striker or as a, a bad boy off the pitch? Well. I- I think he is looked upon as in that kind of yeah, sort of 2005-2010 period as being one of the better strikers in the league. You know, someone who could be depended on um, to get into double figures, which, you know, at that time in City A, but also I think around around Europe was, well, seemed and looked more difficult than it is now where, you know, we're, we're, we're quite used to strikers scoring, you know, in excess of 20 to 30 goals, um, if not more, um, every year. Yeah, I think there is always an affection um, in Italy for Mavericks. Um, you know, someone who has just extraordinary talent, and you just put up with what comes with it, all the baggage. Um, you know, there aren't many players in Serie A who've you know been in a rap video with Snoop Dogg, but Adrian Muto, <laughs> Adrian Muto is one of them. Um, and you know, I think uh, if if any of your listeners haven't seen that video, you know, please please check it out because. Um, Again, maybe that was another money-making exercise where Mutu was about to, you know, sort of go into hip hop 
and launch it, launch a new music label to just you know just help pay back those bills. Simon, he didn't go for the hip hop career in the end, as you, as you point out. He's, he's currently coach of the Romania under twenty one side. Back in his his home country, opinions kind of split, isn't it, about whether you know he's somebody who's turned his life around and needs to be commended to that, or or, or if he just wasted the best part of his career. Yeah, I spoke, I spoke to um, a couple of um, Romanian journalists to, to get give some insight. Um, and it does come across that the country's a bit torn about him because you've got to remember that he was viewed as the next Hadji, Georgie Hadji, who's who's still revered as Romania's sort of greatest football export. And, and Mutu, that the hope was that, that this was the second coming, as it were, that he would go on and, and do Romania proud on, on, the, on the biggest stage. So for him to throw it away at Chelsea and all the scandal that, that followed him around... It, it means that there are people out there in, in Romania that, that, that do sort of remember the bad more than the good. But at the same time, he, he is almost like a a great story now because he, he is actually turning his life around. That The fact that he's, um, as he admits, and I was sort of revealing the article that he, in an interview that he said, I'm now less than 10% of the man I used to be. And, and that's actually a positive um, because he has completely changed his ways. And the fact that he's been put in charge of Romania's under-21s, he is now looking at any sign of, from his youngsters that they're going down the wrong path. So if, uh, as, as was told to me, if a player is seen suddenly sporting a, a funky haircut or gone out and got some fancy tattoos, he, he's on them straight away because, of course, he's looking for any sign that they could be going down the wrong path. So... He the, the interesting thing, though, is, as, as the piece details, one of the reasons he fell off the rails at Chelsea was he couldn't handle the pressure. And, and that was from Romania and from joining a club like Chelsea. And now he's back in under the microscope to a degree as coach of Romania's under-21, certainly in his own country. And so he is putting himself once again under that spotlight in his own country and because the pressure is on him a little bit because Romania got to the, the semi-finals of the last European Under-21 Championships. There's there's a lot of hope in the country that Romania are now about to have another bright period in their future in, and, and he's in charge of it and everyone's looking to see how he can handle it as a coach and he's got a big point to prove that he can perhaps do more as a coach than he ended up doing as a player, certainly um, from what he did at Chelsea, which um, flattered to deceive considerably. It's going to be interesting to see what the next uh, step of his career looks like. It's a, a really great detailed piece that, so do check it out upon The Athletic now if you haven't already. OK, James is sticking around for the final part of today's show and our panel will put forward, or should that be put Forza? No, forward is correct. <laughs> uh, their case for who is Chelsea's greatest Italian manager. Chelsea, the first club to appoint an Italian as manager in the Premier League when Gianluca Vialli replaced Ruud Hullet in 1998. Since then, five of Vialli's compatriots have followed suit, namely Claudio Ranieri, Carlo Ancelotti, Roberto Di Matteo, Antonio Conte and Maurizio Sarri. Uh, James, before we go into them individually, have you got a theory as to why Chelsea have been so keen on Italian managers and, and vice versa over the last 20 years? Or is it, is it just a coincidence? Well, I think they like the fact that um, Italian managers always, as Conte said at his press conference, um, yeah, they look at the job as, as as being like a tailor, you know, where they cut their cloth accordingly. Um, yeah, Sarri would 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 prove yeah the challenge to that, I suppose, in having a very specific style of play. But all the other ones that kind of came before him, be it Ancelotti, be it Ranieri. Um, yeah, they looked at the squad that Chelsea um, put in front of them, and and decided how they could make the best of it um, without really having any kind of preconceived ideas of of, of how they wanted the, the the team to play. And I think for a club of, with Chelsea's kind of model, um, which was you know sort of early on seemed to be just get all the best talent that we can possibly aggrandize. Um, I think that. That worked for them um, uh, initially, and yeah, I think um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think we shouldn't underestimate as well the uh, the groundwork that was done initially with uh, with you know, the likes of Viali, Di Matteo, 
um, Hullet um, coming in as kind of making Chelsea a name in Italy, giving them a reputation where, you know, I, I don't think they had the same profile, certainly in the kind of mid-90s, um, that uh, A, they do now, but B, that other clubs at that time in England had, um, yeah, most kind of notably Manchester United, um, you know, Chelsea... You know, certainly over the, the Abramovich years became a um, became a big name in Italy, and I think as time has gone on as well, and we see this with decisions players make as uh, as well as managers, yeah, you know, people want to come live and work in London. Mm. If we have a quick look at them one by one, then chronologically, we start with uh, Viali. He was pretty fortunate when he made the step up to manager from player. He inherited a team second in the league and already well placed it in both the League Cup and the Cup Winners' Cups, which Chelsea would go on to win. Uh, does that and his subsequent managerial records suggest that Viali owed as much to, to luck as to judgment in terms of his success? I think he, he, he felt like a trailblazer at the time, and I think he should get credit for that. Um, uh, it's a bit harsh to say lack of judgment. I watched some of the some, some of Viali's teams when they, when they were dismantling sides, certainly mid mid table and, and lower in, towards the relegation zone in the in the Premier League. They were they were quite something. I mean, they played a, a wonderful brand of expansive football, and they had you know the the brilliance of Zola they could lean on. Um, and he wasn't a bad player himself, Viali. When he came off the bench, he usually did damage as well. It was a it was a a good team, and they. Yeah, they they won trophies, and bearing in mind the the context that Chelsea hadn't been winning that many trophies in recent times, it, that it just felt like they were a new force, an emerging force, and a, and a force without Abramovich's billions uh, behind them. Well, that that came subsequently, so I think he did a wonderful job at a, a really interesting time in the club's development. Next on the list, the only Italian to manage Chelsea and not win a trophy, Claudio Ranieri. Uh, he was the next permanent manager after Viali. Liam, he didn't collect any silverware, but he did oversee the, the transition into the Abramovich era, so he, he deserves credit for that. Yeah, he does, and I think he also managed the club at a time when they were kind of paying the price financially for the the Viali and Hullet period. Um you know, Chelsea were were beginning to foot the bill for the spending of those years, and and of course, in his final season, the only signing he makes is Simon Johnson's good friend Kike De Lucas. Um, so he he was limited in that sense, but he he did still have good squads to to play with, and um, and he he got some good results without getting that trophy to to kind of change his image as a manager. I think. Um, and the, the the FA Cup final loss against Arsenal uh, was a was a big blow to his his reputation as Chelsea coach. I think the the death knell was very much once Abramovich had come in the the semi final against Monaco, where I think Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank ends up at right back, Robert Huth ends up on the right wing. They find a way to lose to ten men. He never quite recovered from that, but based on what he did at Chelsea and obviously what he's done since around Europe and, and of course the miracle with Leicester Ranieri's very capable and, and he did a very capable job at that unique point of Chelsea's history so the next Italian for the job was Carlo Ancelotti who spent two seasons in charge and, and led the Blues to the double in 2010 Simon we, we've spoken a little bit about that that Ancelotti team of, of 09-10 one of the great entertainers in terms of of Chelsea side do you think if if Abramovich had his time again he, he maybe would have shown a bit more patience with Ancelotti yeah I, th- I think there was certainly a, an element of regret with hindsight in in how they handled things at the time that perhaps that was the one manager that they sort of do feel that perhaps they they they, they acted a bit too soon but then you have to remember what Chelsea were at the time which was a side that was, or certainly a club that that demanded the ultimate success year in year out, and also that that Carlo was hired primarily to to win the Champions League, and his record for Chelsea was very disappointing given all his achievements at AC Milan. Uh, Roman hoped that he would be the one that would that would uh, bring the uh, the elusive trophy to Chelsea, um, but he crashed out in the last 16 and, and the quarterfinals. And, and it wasn't just that they lost early, but who they lost to. One was obviously Jose Mourinho with Inter Milan. That went down very, very badly uh, with the powers that be. And and then, of course, the following year, it was Manchester United, a domestic rival. 
So unfortunately, Carlo Ancelotti paid the price for that. But it, it, there's no doubt about it that that Carlo Ancelotti was a very likable manager. Not not just with the the Premier League and and the outside world. He sort of was a more acceptable face to Chelsea, especially you know following Jose Mourinho a few years before. He, he didn't seek the controversy. He was a very respected man, um, but also he was very liked by his players. He's probably the most um, gifted at man management, if not always the most tactically astute, which is perhaps what surprised some people. Some of his substitutions uh, often had me. He was famous for raising an eyebrow. Uh, I, my eyebrows raised many a time when he would swap a right back for a right back when Chelsea were losing. I didn't quite get that one. But <laughs> he, he'll definitely go down in, in history as, as a very, very popular manager, and rightly so, because of that double success in 210. Well, Ancelotti, as we know, got the uh, the guillotine at Goodison. His replacement, Andre Villas-Boas, was quickly ditched. Roberto Di Matteo, who had been number two to AVB, was handed the reins for the second half of the 2011-12 season, uh, which ended quite well, I think it's fair to say. Liam, does he get enough credit, Di Matteo, in terms of his, his spell as Chelsea manager? A lot of the talk seems to be, well, it was a collegiate effort between the rest of the staff and the players, as much as it was about Di Matteo. He was there for, for a good time, if not a long time. But let's not forget, he was the man in charge when Chelsea won the trophy that the owner had craved for so long. Yeah, I don't think he does get enough credit in certain aspects. I mean, you can you can talk about, you know, him not being this all-powerful managerial figure imposing his authority on the squad, but I think that was a smart thing to do as well as maybe being his natural character. Um the the kind of collegiate atmosphere that he that he built mid-season coming into a, a dressing room that was really fractured when when Villas-Boas had been sacked. Um, and empowering those senior players who'd felt kind of stripped of their of their influence under Villas Boas was a was a really smart thing to do. And you see consistently on that Champions League run, he makes smart decisions. Whether it's playing Didier Drogba ahead of Fernando Torres at, at key moments, you know the owner be damned. Um, whether it's playing Ramirez on the left wing at home to Barcelona in the first leg to try and exploit the space behind Dani Alves, and that's exactly where the goal comes from. Okay, Ryan Bertrand in the Champions League final maybe doesn't work quite so well, <laughs> but uh, but they got amazing things done, and they got them done because, I think, uh, Di Matteo did s- smart little things around the edges, and he empowered the people that needed to be empowered uh, to, to make those, those cup runs possible. And... I think he does deserve a, a lot of credit for that. It, it doesn't necessarily make him a really good coach in another context, as we've seen when he's gone into other clubs and, and and not done so well. But for that moment and for that particular group of players, he was absolutely perfect. So Di Matteo ditched months after Munich. Chelsea didn't go Italian again for the best part of four years when Antonio Conte came in. Two seasons and two trophies for him in his time in England. James, was was he always looking to get into the Premier League or was it the, the Chelsea job specifically that was the attraction for him? Well, the amazing thing about Conte was that he left Juventus under a bit of a cloud, which, um, again, um, sounds strange given that um, he left them having set a new record in Serie A, 102 points. No one had ever broken the 100-point barrier. But, you know, the reason why he, he essentially walked away, um, you know, much to Juventus's sort of anger, um, was because he, he famously said that, you know, being at Juventus was like uh, going into a restaurant where um, the, the, the meal is going to be 100 euros ahead and, and all you've got is 10 euros in your pocket. He didn't feel that he could be competitive in the Champions League. He then went and got the Italy job. And then I think he was always looking for his next role to be one where the budget would be bigger. He'd have more spending power. He'd be able to go out and get kind of whoever he wanted. And I think he, he you know, from what he knew of Chelsea under Roman Abramovich, there was this sense that, great, I'm, I'm going to go and work for, for this uh, Russian billionaire and um, yeah, he's going to spend as he did at the start of his, his time at Chelsea, which, you know, obviously, you know, while Chelsea were still able to pay uh, big fees, they were moving into a more kind of self-sustainable model, kind of control costs. And um, yeah, that ultimately didn't sit particularly well with Conte. I think uh, 
more or less every transfer window, there was always this sense that Chelsea did their business late, that they didn't get his number one targets. Um, which, you know, if you were to, to listen to, to, to Conte's kind of uh, reflections on, on what he achieved at Chelsea, uh, you know, make it even greater than, than I think even we, you know, we kind of consider it to be. Because for me, he is, it was a short and kind of tempestuous uh, spell, but I think what he did with that team winning the league in the same year that what Pep went to Man City, that Jose Mourinho was at Manchester United. Klopp needed time, still needs time um, to to win the Premier League with Liverpool. He did it coming off, you know, what he, I think he called the Mourinho season, which was, you know, a, a negative in his eyes in terms of how the players were were on the floor after everything that had happened um, the year the year previous, um, and uh, it, yeah, it wasn't to be taken for granted that yeah Chelsea could be immediately turned into you know, not only contenders but yeah, I think you know the aim was maybe to get back into the Champions League and they end up end up winning the league and running away with it. Um, I think um, that was an extraordinary achievement from from Conte, which whichever way you look at it. Certainly was. So we come to the most recent Italian incumbent of the position marked head coach at Chelsea, the poster boy for cigarettes and standoffishness, Maurizio Sarri. Uh, just the one season left having guided Chelsea to the Europa League as well as the League Cup final and a third place finish in the Premier League. Didn't make a whole bunch of friends in his time in England, I think it's fair to say. Dom, a bit of time's passed now. How, how do we reflect on, on Sarri's season? Well, memory sort of drifts back to the the scenes in Baku um, post match when he had a little tear in his eyes. He actually had had this trophy in his hand, and uh, almost he was he was like a young kid sort of trying to comprehend the fact that he'd he'd won a major trophy, uh, which was actually quite lovely to see, and 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 made us almost the, the the stance towards him soften a bit, certainly personally, um, but. Any sort of appraisal of Maurizio Sarri's tenure has, has to has to look at that horrible horrible run at the in the middle of the season um, when it, it just unravelled before our eyes. I mean, we remember the was there a hefty defeat to Bournemouth and the, and, the, and, a, and a dreadful dreadful occasion at Watford where the, the team were absolutely battered out of sight, and and that wasn't he was never going to recover from that. That was almost his bad moment going back to to coin a a Carlo Ancelotti phrase. And I think faith in, in his commitment really to the cause suffered as a result of, of, of the tensions created in that, in that mid season period. And it almost felt doomed from a very, very early, early time. And it, certainly the, the relationship with the supporters fractured beyond repair. And there was, there was never going to be the, the match going fans never really took to him after that. And uh, it didn't help him that so few of them were in Baku to witness his, 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 greatest moment as Chelsea's manager. James, what's what's Sarri had to say to the Italian press about his time in England since he's since he's gone back home? Well, on the one hand, I think this this goes back to the starting question on, on this discussion, you know, about what uh, Chelsea like about Italian managers is that you know, some of them don't have a style. Um, yeah, it is just purely about winning. And if you win things, then you are considered a success. It doesn't matter how you've won them. So, you know, with Sarri, it was a case of going back um, to Italy, um, having won a trophy, um, the Europa League. Um, Italians are kind of obsessed with this idea of, um, of, of the European way of playing football, which is anything that isn't kind of seen as defensive and grinding out wins. And, you know, I think, again, with, with Sarri, this idea that he has a, a style of play which is conducive to winning in Europe, um, which, you know, again, was seen as underlined by that success that, that Chelsea had in Baku, meant that, OK, you know, if we put him in uh, in this Juventus side, um, yeah, he will. He, he has a, a, a way of, of, of approaching games that will mean we have a better chance of, of winning in Europe. I mean, they were certainly aware of the of the, of the friction um, that there was between him and some of the players. I think, you know, even at Juventus, the, the idea that you know someone who has come up right from the very bottom of the football pyramid and has had to drill players who don't have the talent of you know, your Eden Hazard's or your Cristiano Ronaldo's over and over again in terms of getting 
to get your ideas across, to then replicate that with those same players who kind of like, Maurizio, we get it. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we, we can do these kind of things in our sleep. We don't need to be doing all this kind of repetition. I think yeah, that has sometimes been a, a bit of a challenge for him. And um, certainly I think as we saw at Chelsea, yeah, Juventus too, where you're at a big club where there's a, there is a sizable media presence before and after every game. Communication has sometimes been an issue, you know, in, in some of the things that he's he's come out with, which have bristled um, either players or, or people within the club about, you know, what the club's all about, what its objectives should be. You know, this idea that he sometimes talks down the team a little bit as as not being as good as as either the club thinks it is or the players think they are. And, um, yeah, I think that's something that continues to... I wouldn't say dog Sarri, but uh, certainly certainly follow him around, and um, something I think he he needs to show if he is to to keep coaching for 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 a while yet at the highest level that he's able to 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 get his words right um, and get the message right uh, when he's you know coaching a genuine elite side and 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 sort of superstar players as well. Yeah, really interesting the way he's uh, handled. Hazard and, and Ronaldo to follow. Uh, let's get some decisions then, chaps. Uh, Liam, I'll come to you first. Who Who is Chelsea's greatest ever Italian manager? I will go for Antonio Conte and I'm going to give him two awards. I'm going to say he's Chelsea's best Italian manager and worst diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Dom, who are you picking? Well, the greatest fun I had covering one of them was Carlo Ancelotti, definitely, just just in that, that first season in particular. And they, in fairness, there were there were no shortage of, se- of stories when, when things unravelled the following year. But in terms of a- achievements, Antonio Conte every day, that what he, what he did in the context of what had happened the previous year under Mourinho and Hiddink, for him to win that, that league title um, was astonishing. Um, so I'd go with him. Do you concur, Simon? Yes, I do. I, I just think tactically the way he changed... Chelsea's way of playing he recognised there was a problem early on in the season made that switch to three at the back and and you know what Chelsea did that season to win 30 games as well I know Man City beat that record but for that Chelsea squad to to, to bounce back from the season before to win 30 league games was incredible I'm just disappointed with what happened after that I just think um Yes, he had certainly had his reasons to be upset with the board, but I just I just wish he'd handled it far better than he ended up doing and, and ended up leaving on a sour note, albeit with a very healthy paycheck eventually through the courts. James, is there any evidence that, that he's softened his, his stance slightly toward boards and, and their decisions with regards to the purse strings at clubs during his time at Inter? <laughs> <laughs> no way. No, is the no way. He's exactly the same. I was in Singapore for 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 Inter's and Juventus's kind of pre-season tour, their kind of first leg of the international champions trophy, and he'd uh, he'd only been in the job a matter of weeks, and he was already kind of complaining that Inter were behind on on where they needed to be. That um, you know, if he'd known certain things um, uh, before, maybe he would have thought twice about uh, about taking the job. Um, no, he's and as we've seen, you know, when they we're in the Champions League this season uh, in the group stages, and they they got themselves into great positions um, against Barcelona in the in the Camp Nou, and also against Dortmund, and ultimately couldn't see those results out. Afterwards, it was nothing to do with him. It was everything to do with the fact that they hadn't bought some of the players that he had he had requested, or or covered some of the positions that he needed covering. Uh, in the summer transfer window, so yeah, Conte. Yeah, it's a leopard that won't change his spots. You know what you're going to get with Conte, and you know if you're going to be an executive above him or an owner, you can guarantee he's going to be knocking at your door. That's just who he is, and I think it explains why he is the winner because um, he's just so so demanding. Um, okay, that's just about it for today. Before we part company, though, let's hear what's on offer for Athletic readers to peruse this week. James, as you're the guest, you can go first. You've written something on a man who once upon a time was heavily linked with the Chelsea job. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, it was uh, last year. It was the 20th anniversary of uh, of Sven um, winning the the, the Scudetto with uh, with Lazio. Um, when Sven was very much at the peak of his powers, um, and you kind of you have to really go back in time to just remember uh, what he had achieved, um, you know, getting when 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 he got the England job. So that's all in in that piece. There will be a kind of Pjanic update 
uh, coming uh, coming later in the week, um, I think as well. And uh, you know, just as Simon has had his instalment of the Scandal Blitz go live, there will be a Scandal Blitz from me because. Serie A in Italy, it's never short of scandal. So I think I probably could have written this entire blitz myself. Yeah, there are athletic long reads and then there are athletic long reads on Italian football scandal. You might have to set aside some time to read that one, listener. Um, Liam, as I mentioned earlier, you've been speaking to Neil Robertson about his love of Chelsea. What else can subscribers look forward to reading from you this week? Yeah, so this week I'm putting together a big oral history of uh, the events leading up to Roman Abramovich's takeover essentially. So starting with the all-important game against Liverpool on the final day of the season and then just going through from there through the mad weeks um, that followed Abramovich's takeover, well, the actual negotiations and then the the spending splurge that came afterwards, trying to speak to as many people who were around the club at the time as possible. So that should be a lot of fun and a lot of work as well. So I better get on with it. (laughs) <laughs> we mentioned uh, Simon's Adrian Mutu piece which is well worth a read Don what's on your agenda slash laptop for the coming few days well I think Si and I are going to be working together on a on a piece looking back at George Ware's time at, at, at Chelsea which should be interesting um, it's forgot, one of the forgotten figures at the club at the time um, and also went on to have a, a career at another club in England I'll see if you can remember who that was um, various other secret squirrel stuff to do as well. So fairly busy. All right. Well, remember, folks, if you aren't currently a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a 90-day free trial by going to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. And if you are a subscriber, don't forget you can get an ad-free version of this and The Athletic's many other fine podcasts by listening through the app. And many thanks to James for joining us today and, of course, to Dom, Simon and Liam. But mainly, listener, our thanks go to you. We're back same time, same place next week. We'd love to have your company then. And if you could rate, review and subscribe to the show, that would be tremendously helpful. If you've missed one of the episodes in the last few weeks, do go back and check them out. That's the good thing about lockdown and no football. These episodes are pretty timeless, so do feel free to dip into our ever-expanding archives. For now, though, it's goodbye. (music) 